0: Hello pod, I'm Chris Hewitt and welcome to this very special Empire Podcast. Amazingly, it's been 16 years since Brian Norman left the BBC's flagship film programme, Film Insert Year Here, and arguably the greatest theme tune in the history of television but the shadow he cast as Britain's highest profile film critic continues nonetheless his new book See You in the Morning is a heartfelt account of his marriage to his late wife Diana and when he came at the pod booth for this special Phil Disemnion Nick Disemnion and I three people who probably wouldn't be doing what we do now had it not been for our love of Baza and the film programme jumped at a chance to interview him for a wonderful hour or so about his life his love and a landmark programme of which I've been lucky enough to have been a small part as a great man might say and why not? Enjoy. We are delighted to be joined in the pod booth by the legend that is Barry Norman. Uh, and I uh, saw so you, you pulled a face when I called you a legend. But uh, I will start, I'll start off by saying that I, I think, uh, honestly, the three of us here wouldn't be sitting here, wouldn't be film journalists if it wasn't for you. And, uh, you you know, had such an impact. Is that something that you hear quite a lot? I mean, we grew up watching film Yes, Insert you're here.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it, actually, yes. I mean, it, it sounds immodest, but yeah, I have heard that quite a lot, and I'm deeply flattered every time I, I hear it, because you know, I, I had no idea I was having any kind of impact at all. Really, mm. I was just doing a job which I enjoyed doing, which seemed to me to be better than working. <laughs> and, uh, you know, nobody found me out for a very long time and I was happy to go <laughs> on with it. So, But, yeah, I'm, and quite a few people have said what, what you've just said. And as I said, yeah, I, I find that really very flattering.
2: Not just that, but actually my uh, love of knitwear and jumpers has been very much inspired by you as well.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's odd, isn't it? Everybody thinks I wore a jumper the whole time and I didn't. I, there was only one year when I wore wore jumpers and then after that I went back to jackets and blazers mm. and suits and things. That
2: was the year I was most impressionable though. Obviously yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's the first
1: year you watched the show. <laughs> we
2: were talking just just before about about the Oscars and you were saying that you didn't watch it this year and 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 reminiscing about some of your experiences about coming down watching the Oscar ceremony in the hotel and then going down to Mortons for the yeah. big after party. Do you have kind of one abiding memory of being outside Mortons with all these kind of galaxy of stars drifting past well,
1: there was one again this is this looks like blowing my own trumpet again but there was <laughs> there was one wonderful occasion I was stand, there outside Morton's there are about a hundred television crews you know and, and everybody's yelling at the stars as they go in and I was standing there that night with a very pretty girl from uh, Los Angeles Channel 7 on my left and a guy on my right And everybody, they were all shouting at the stars. And I said to Bruce Thompson, my producer, look, I'm not shouting at people, you know. And Bruce said, all right, I'll do the shouting. And at that moment, Tony Hopkins came by, peak of his fame as Hannibal Lecter. And he clearly wasn't going to go and talk to the cameras. He just wanted to go straight into Morton's until Bruce stood up and shouted, Oi, Tony, come over here and talk to Barry. And Mm. Tony looked across and smiled and waved and came over. And, you know, I did an interview. And then he talked to the girl from Channel 7 and a couple of other people. then he went away, and, and the girl from Channel 7 looked at me with adoration. I said, gosh, <laughs> you must be very famous. And I said, well, you know,
2: ah. <laughs>
0: Quite. But it was a
1: lovely moment. Good for the ego, that one.
0: Did, um, did the film show start
1: off with uh, interviews, or was that something that you incorporated as it, as it went along? No, it started off with the interviews. Um, I remember, I think for the first programme I, I did, I did an interview with um, Peter Bogdanovich about The Last Picture Show. Hmm. And then, That's not a bad way to start.
3: No, it was <laughs> That's a bad way to start. Good, yeah.
1: And then the, I think the next time we had both James Stewart and Charlton Heston in the studio.
0: <laughs> you've
4: said Amazing. that you have never been starstruck, yeah. which I find a little bit unbelievable. I mean, considering the people you've met, and the, the, the the people from old golden Hollywood and, and
1: well, so. Yeah, but you, you see, I was brought up in a film household because my father, Leslie Norman, produced The Cruel Sea and directed Dunkirk and various other films. So there were always actors coming in and out of my house. And and I learned very early on that they're they're probably prettier than the rest of us, but they're very much working stiffs like the rest of us with the same kind of problems. You know, they talked to my dad about whether they had enough money to pay their income tax or whether their wife was having an affair or whether their career was on the way up or the way down. And they had all the same worries as everybody else. So I I then realised early on that there was no point in being awe-stricken by somebody who made a living by to, pretending to be somebody else. Mm. So I never... The, the closest I came to being starstruck was by Laurence Olivier, but that was largely because of what he did in the theatre rather than in cinema.
2: But you didn't... I mean, you didn't necessarily start out looking to become a film journalist, did you? No. I mean, you did, that wasn't necessarily the path you were going down. But... Gossip, a gossip reporter to start with, and then, and then, well, not
1: not to start with. I started off on a local paper in Kensington, then I worked on an evening paper in Johannesburg for a couple of years, then I went up to what was then Southern Rhodesia, is now Zimbabwe, to what was then um, Salisbury, is now Harare, and worked on a morning paper there. Then I came back, and yes, and I did become a gossip column in, columnist in London, because that was the only job I was offered in London, and I hated it.
2: Yeah, but that was the job that got you to meet your wife. D.
1: Yes, as I say in my book. Yeah. I'll see you in the morning. Yeah, we met at uh, Moscow State Circus when it came to London which you know it doesn't sound like a big event now but in in the <laughs> what in the 50s um, Moscow State Circus was huge and uh, and I went along to cover it for the Daily Sketch and she went along to cover it for the Daily Herald. And I always said afterwards that we actually met when she was in the circus and I threw peanuts through the bars (laughs) in the cater which she always greeted with a very wry smile, as you can imagine. (laughs) And anyway, yeah, that's where we met, and we'd never met before. I'd been in Fleet Street for about a year by that time, and she'd been there longer, uh, because she was the youngest reporter in Fleet Street when she first went there. And we'd never met before, but that week we met three times at different events. Concluding with uh, Charlie Chaplin giving a press conference at and Studios talking about this, the new film he was going to make here. And that, after that, I gave her a lift back to London and uh, we decided, yeah, we'd quite like to go out together. And that's how it all started.
2: So in 53 years of happy marriage, yeah. how many times did you hear that circus joke?
1: Oh, <laughs> far more often than she'd have liked, I must say. You know, uh, you know. I always reckon the old ones are always the best, but uh, she didn't really agree. No, she took it very. She took it all very well.
2: Um, what is the secret to a happy marriage, for you? I mean, and because Trust, especially with yeah. your job taking you around, meeting people, going to Hollywood. I,
1: I don't think there is any secret to a happy marriage. I think everybody finds their own way towards one, and I think our the great thing we had was that we always gave each other space because we were both the kind of people who needed at times to be on our own and do our own thing and we both acknowledged that with each other so I particularly it worked when um, Diana was always very keen on sailing and when she was 50 she and some friends bought a 30-foot yacht and she'd go sailing uh, in, in East Anglia and you know my idea of sailing is sitting on the deck of the QE2 with a gin and tonic. You know, <laughs> I, I didn't want to go pull ropes and God knows what and get wet. So you know, I, I looked at a boat and admired it, and never went on it. And and my passion was cricket, and Diana mm. wasn't remotely interested in cricket. So she'd go sailing, and I'd go to Lords. We meet in the evening, and we both had a nice day. And so we went on.
0: There's a, an amazing thread throughout the book that even as 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 nonplussed as you were by stars and meeting stars, your wife was even more nonplussed by, by celebrity and, oh, no, and meeting did, famous she, people.
1: She didn't like actors. She didn't like meeting <laughs> actors very much, you know, because she always thought she was going to be disillusioned. Um, I mean, the only films she really liked were films with happy endings. So, mm-hmm. um, *Pretty Woman* it was one of her favourite movies, um, and and she. Rarely, if ever, came to any film function with me. You know, mm. I always asked her, and, and she's now, I don't think I'll bother. And I, I perfectly understood that. But she was she was knocked out by, uh, by a few people she met. I, we went to a party at Lawrence Olivier's flat once, and, and yeah, she was overwhelmed by Olivier, but then I was to a large extent. Yes. And another time we were at some film premiere and went to the supper afterwards, and we were sitting next to Jodie Foster. And who's very bright, yeah. mm. I mean, really, and a, a charming woman. And Diana was knocked out by her too. And then, one of her favourites was Kenneth Branagh. And we went to a special preview of his Hamlet in the, in the West End, and then off to the Dorchester Hotel for a reception. Um, and Ken was there, and I said to Diana, "Look, I'm going to go and talk to Ken. Come on, I'll introduce you." Oh no, I don't. No, I don't want to meet him. Mm. He said, "So I went over and brought Ken over to her, and of course he charmed her. And, um, <laughs> so she would. But those are about the only three people I can remember. I would Dicky Attenborough is an old family friend, and she was very fond of him. But well, he was at your wedding. He was at he? my yeah. wedding. There's, There's a,
0: an amazing photograph in the book of
1: of him kissing Diana and yeah. Donald Sinden kissing the back of Dickie's <laughs> head. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I felt like the spare Watson at the wedding that that moment. <laughs> yeah.
4: On the other end of the spectrum, uh, you called Bruce Willis a plonker. Yeah, why why? Why a Oh,
1: God. Well, when he made Armageddon... Remember Armageddon, mm-hmm. where a comet is about to destroy Earth and Bruce gallantly flies under the comet and blows himself and it up, saving the world? Well, they they had a preview of the, uh, what they called a trailer of it at Cannes, for just for film journalists. And this trailer was about 50 minutes long. And it got to the point where Bruce is about to blow up the comet and himself and he wants they've arranged some some kind of telephone link up goodness knows how they did it between the comet and earth where, so he could talk to liv tyler his his daughter mm. for the last time mm. and this was obviously supposed to be the big emotional moment of the movie and the whole audience fell about i mean we rolling about on the <laughs> floor <laughs> And Willis and the director and the producer came out and Willis was in a furious mood. I didn't know we'd made a comedy. And the next day he was up at the Hotel Du Cap, you know, which is where all the big wigs stayed, you know. The hotel's so grand, it doesn't even take credit cards. So <laughs> I, I think you've got to turn up with a pan full of notes. But, and he was up there and he was supposed to be doing interviews with loads of people. And he was cutting interviews down to about two or three minutes, you know, which is just about long enough to say, hello, Bruce, how are you? And goodbye. Mm. And and then some he just didn't do at all. And he went off, to, he was supposed to have an hour off for lunch. and He was away for about an hour and a half. And I had a, a date with him in the afternoon. He didn't cut my time down. But, you know, I, 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 his his mood, it was truculent and sulky. You know, it, and and I said, how did what did you feel about that reaction? He said, oh, gee, you know, God, who, who reads critics? Well, I thought you probably don't because I'm not sure you can read. But. <laughs> <laughs> and and then he said, you know, nobody cares about critics. And and but if and and then he went on moaning. And but if he'd simply said, look, uh, yeah, I was a bit taken aback, and it's, uh, that everybody laughed. But if you see it in context in the film. You won't laugh. You, you'll be moved. If he'd done that, everybody would have been on his side. But he didn't. He just sulks, mm. And, you know, offended a lot of people.
2: Mm. He wasn't wearing a dressing gown for that interview, I hope, because we had an interview with him recently where, mm. wasn't it? He was on a similar mood. Uh, it <laughs> isn't For the
4: Reds too. Yeah. yeah.
1: They do get delusions of adequacy, these people, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> and you didn't like Arnie that much either. Well, Arnie is very up himself, you know. I mean, he, he really is... And and there was one, again at Cannes, one occasion when he was doing interviews, there was a line of us going from one camera to another, and he got to me and he said, I bet I can put the answer the, the title of my film into every answer I give you. And I said, look, please don't do that. <laughs> but, you know, but he did. And he got, and, and it was a truly boring interview, you know. And I, I thought then, what an ass, you know, yeah. prat. So uh, I didn't like him either. Did you
0: find the stars were becoming more powerful? You talked about interview time being restricted to two or three minutes by Bruce Willis. That tends to be the norm pretty much nowadays at, at Junkett's. So- yeah,
1: it, it's, it's, well, it's, it's because of this absurd cult of celebrity. You mm. know, everybody, everybody wants to talk to the A-listers, and the A-listers tend to be big Hollywood movie stars. So all of a sudden the publicity arm is, is, is running it. Is, the tail wags the dog now. Because you know, for nearly all the time I was doing it, if I wanted to talk to somebody like I don't know Steven Spielberg or Tom Hanks about their latest film, we'd just get in touch with them and arrange a place to meet, and then we'd meet um, and, and talk for as long as necessary. But then then came the celebrity cult, and the publicity people took over, and so you got the junkie, mm. you know, where you, you meet up in a hotel, um, and if you're really lucky, you're very privileged you get 15 whole minutes you know, this is not enough it's ridiculous mm. that was one of the reasons why I was quite happy to give up after 30 years yeah. without remission for good conduct
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> I was going to say and was, it's one of the reasons we're delighted that you're here for oh, at least 15 minutes I think is it <laughs> no, <laughs> so, no, yes. we'll maybe try and push for 20 actually if, yeah. we, <laughs> if we can I want to talk about Robert De Niro yeah. and your famous encounter with Robert De Niro. Yeah. Um, how close did you come to actually punching him?
1: No, I, I, I was never going to try and punch him. Come on, I'm, I'm, I may look stupid, but I'm not really. <laughs> I mean, he, he was a lot younger than me and a lot fitter than me. If it had really come to fisticuffs, I'd have been in deep trouble. Now, what happened? I, everybody I knew who tried to interview De Niro said it was a waste of time because he wasn't interested. He did interviews only because his contract said he must. Mm. And... So I, I never even attempted to get an interview with De Niro until Goodfellas, just before Goodfellas opened in London. And a girl from Warner Brothers phoned me up in a state of great excitement and said, De Niro's in town for one day. He'll do one television interview and he'll do it with you. Are you interested? So I thought, well, you know, if it's coming from him, then maybe he's he's got something to say. So anyway, we turned up at the, the Savoy Hotel and we were in a suite on the second floor and he was on the third floor immediately above us. And I think he was supposed to meet us at 10 o'clock. At half past 10, there was no sign of him. So I said to the girl, look, what's happened? He got lost on the stairs on the way down. And she said, I'll I'll go find out. So she made a phone call and came back and said, he's waiting for his shirt to come back from the laundry. And I thought, you know, if somebody said to me, how many shirts do you reckon Robert De Niro owns, I'd have said more than one. (laughs) But apparently not. And he turned out, it was an awful shirt. It was a sort of dung-coloured thing, you know, the wine kind of pattern, but in dull colours. I wouldn't have worn it on a desert island. (laughs) Anyway, he came in and and he, he gave me a perfunctory handshake. He gave my producer a perfunctory handshake, didn't want to be introduced to the crew, sat down and was monosyllabic, as everybody had said he would be. But in the research I'd done before the interview, I'd come across a story that appeared in several American magazines um, in which, and this story said that a few years earlier when they were making Big, you remember uh, about the kid who wakes up in the Mm. body of a 30 year old man. The story went that De Niro went to the producers and begged them to let him play it, and they kicked him out of the office saying, no, no, we want a big star. So they, they got Tom Hanks, who was a star, but not nearly as big as De Niro at that time. Mm. And I thought, I don't believe this story. I really don't. So by the about 15 minutes into the interview, when we were both quite angry, <laughs> um, I, I thought, I'll, I'll ask him about this. And he, I don't know what planet he comes from, but he... He thought I was trying to stir up trouble, and I wasn't. I genuinely wanted to know what his version of the story was. Mm. And I managed eventually to drag it out of him. And his version was that the producers had actually asked him to play the part, and he'd agreed. But then they got together to discuss, no doubt, where and when and how, and probably how much money De Niro wanted. And that's when they fell out, De Niro walked away, and this story started spreading. Mm. Now, it seemed to me that De Niro's version was the only one that actually made sense. And I'd have thought he'd have been quite glad to have that in the public domain, but apparently not, because at the end of the interview, um, I said, you know, with no good will at all, thank you very much, and reached out my hand to shake his, and he ignored me. He said, you had to get that one in, didn't you? I said, what are you talking about? He said, you know what I'm talking about. And he swept out. So I swept out after him. And I said, what's your bloody problem? He said, you know what my problem is. And suddenly we're nose to nose, (laughs) snarling at each other. It was very childish. Um, And he was was angry, and so was I, because he'd wasted my time. And it, I, I really, there was a moment there when I when I thought he he might hang one on me, and, and I was not looking forward to that moment.
2: So if he's the raging bull, what would be Barry Norman's boxing nickname?
1: Or <laughs> well, the Craven, whatever, <laughs> <laughs> Craven <laughs> her, perhaps. <laughs>
4: You've uh, you did a pint of milk interview with us back in '96, our train spotting uh, issue. But you revealed in that that you were once sent a pair of knickers by a fan.
1: Yes, I was. Yeah, so those were pretty heady days. Yeah, they were. well, this you know, this is about 100 years ago when I was known as the Thinking Girls Crumpet. Uh, <laughs> it's uh, impossible to believe now, but it's, it was true at the time. Yeah, and, and one day through the, through the post came this pair of clean knickers. Um, I didn't take them home. I thought my wife <laughs> wouldn't appreciate it.
4: Robert De Niro never sent you his pants.
1: N- I'm happy to say he did
4: not.
0: Uh, they'd have gone back by return of post. Strange enough, I, uh, I did a pint of milk interview with Robert De Niro. Oh, did you? About a year and a half ago. It was interesting. <laughs> yeah. how did way. you get on with it? Um, I think he's talking a little bit more. Well, probably because days? his career's mm. on the way down
1: a little bit yeah. now, isn't it? I mean, he was, I, you know, I, it's bizarre. But even after that interview with him, when I was really cross, I got back and I was writing my review of Goodfellas that day, mm. and I found myself writing that, you know, in my opinion, De Niro is probably the best screen actor around at <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> this time. Yeah. You know, even though he really
2: cheese me off Hmm. we should mention of course that you have a new book see you in the morning which is i believe out today in paperback but you can also get it in hardback as well and we have a hardback copy here it's on kindle as well and on kindle ebook yep do you have a kindle barry
1: Yes, I have a Kindle. Yeah. I haven't got that on it actually. Well, I've got loads of copies of that at home, as you can imagine. <laughs>
2: <Yeah>. <laughs> well, it's it's a it's, a, it's a, obviously a, lo- a love story really, and as well a yeah. memoir of your of your time as a film writer. So there's different strands to the book. I wondered. I mean, it's a, it's a beautiful story about you and your wife Dee. And I wondered if if someone were to make it into a movie, that love story, w- which director would you want to direct it?
1: Oh, that's an interesting. I ah, hmm. I get I get on. Well, I, I tell you, the, the directors I'd probably get on best with are Steven Spielberg and Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> don't think it's Quentin's kind of movie somehow. So maybe Spielberg. Although Steve McQueen, I have a load of time for Steve McQueen. I don't know him, but uh, I've got a load of respect for his work. So, yeah, he, he'd direct it. Then I think Michelle Pfeiffer to play Diana. And if he were just a bit better looking... George Clooney to play me <laughs> <laughs>
0: we, uh, one of the reader questions we, we've got more of you later on but one of the reader questions we had for you uh, someone said mention Michelle Pfeiffer he loves it when she gets brought up and you brought her up yourself um, I did yeah because you, you first thing you have a crush on Michelle Pfeiffer Was no it, how, I don't how, how would you, how would you describe
1: so it? I, did. I did an interview with her once um about Frankie and Johnny, which had come Mm. out a a year earlier in America and for some reason or other it was delayed getting here. And she'd done lots of things since then. So when we were doing the interview, she wasn't really interested in talking about Frankie and Johnny very Mm. much. And it wasn't going anywhere until I said, you know, you have once said that you thought you looked like a duck. And she said, yes. And I said, well, all I can say is that if all ducks look like you, the courts would be full of men up on bestiality charges. (laughs) That's a line and a half. And after that, it became quite a flirtatious chat you know, because she was very pleased. Yeah, so so the rumour went around that I was madly in love with Michelle Pfeiffer. I wasn't. Mm. I liked her a great deal. And I think, you know, she was certainly the most beautiful woman on the screen. I mean, she's absolutely gorgeous. And the other lovely thing about that was that, you know, when you do these interviews in hotel suites, there's only one camera behind the interviewer so you, you've got to sit quite close together Yes, and I have to tell you that sitting for an hour or so with your legs brushing up against Michelle Pfeiffer's is not a bad way to earn a living <laughs> <laughs> Do you
4: have a uh, favourite Michelle Pfeiffer performance?
1: Well she was so miscast in Frankie Johnny because the trouble is that she was supposed to look plain mm. and you, you can't make her look plain I mean if, if you walked around if you blacked out her front teeth and she walked around with her eyes crossed, she still looked gorgeous, you know so yeah no i I, no, I don't think I've got a favorite Michelle Pfeiffer performance. I just like watching her on the screen.
0: So I imagine uh, your wife Diana was never threatened by Michelle
1: Pfeiffer in in any way. No, no, because she never made a pass at me, I'm sorry to say
4: <laughs> <laughs> And you mentioned uh, Spielberg. how was it going to Amblin and 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 meeting him there? It must have been an amazing.
1: Oh, yeah. No, I have a lot of time for for Stephen. He's a really, really nice guy. He always used to to call me the $64 million man. And I said, why? And he said, well, we always seem to meet when I've made a movie that's just cost $64 million. And and I said, yeah, that's true. Why does none of that money ever rub off on me? He said, you're (laughs) at the wrong end of the business. (laughs) And he was right. He was right.
2: um i have a a childhood since childhood a bit of an obsession with war movies so I was very thrilled to discover that you were on the set of the longest day which oh yeah is an unusual one and it had about fifty four directors didn't it or at least four of them directing the each right. different yeah. part of the yeah. battle and you also tell a story about how you met sean, sean connery well, on that who, who has location. a rather he's kind of a small part in that movie doesn't he i mean oh, everyone's yeah,
1: I in just spitting a cough really yeah um no I was just invited to go out to the Ile de Re where they were filming and, and the, the company said, look, we'll fly you to Paris. We have to go by train from Paris to um, La Rochelle. So, I, and, and they said, you know, there'll be some actors on. Do you mind travelling with actors? And I said, well, you know, as so long as my friends don't find out. No, I'm quite happy <laughs> to travel with actors. <laughs> and there was Michael Medwin, Norman Rossington, and this big, bald Scottish bloke, whom I'd never heard of, was introduced to me, Sean Connery. I'd never heard of him, of him at all, actually. And the others... Michael Medwin's very smart. He he got a first-class seat with Norman Rossington. Sean and I ended up sitting on the floor of a third-class compartment all the way to La... Everybody was going to La Rochelle that day for reasons I can't understand. And we were just making conversation. And I said, you know, what 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 are you doing next, Sean? And he said, oh, I'm playing James Bond. And he didn't sound very happy about it. I said, you yeah, things are tough, are they? He said, well, it's your job. <laughs> well, the next time I saw him, he was a superstar, you know. In fact, the next time I saw him was at the Paris premiere of Dr. No. Mm. And all the, the the French interviewers and television presenters and whatnot were terribly embarrassed about saying his name because Connery means, at at the most polite, bloody foolishness in French. <laughs> Speaking of
4: Bond, um, you put Skyfall in your list of top British yeah. films of all time. So well,
1: top Bond films of top, all time. Oh, OK. Right, yeah. right, right. OK.
4: So uh, you think... You've obviously reviewed a lot of them over the yeah, years. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. I've seen them all. Yeah.
4: <laughs> Have you met all the... Uh... Uh,
1: all except Lazenby... La- no, uh, uh, Lazenby I didn't meet and Timothy Dalton I've never met. i met all the others.
0: There's an amazing story in the book where uh, you offer your services to Cubby Broccoli as Bond before I did. Lazenby was cast. I did. Can you tell us about that?
1: Well, it was just that, you know, Sean had decided he wasn't going to do it anymore and, you know, there was a, an awful lot of rumour in the papers about who was going to be the next James Bond because the franchise was pretty huge already by that time and I went along to see Harry Saltzman who in those days co-produced the films with Cubby Broccoli and said who's it going to be and, and he said I don't know who do you suggest and I said well, I'm free <laughs> <laughs> he just laughed which I thought was very rude yeah, you know. that is rude yeah, it was. Yeah. Who do you end up with, George Lazenby? He'd been better off with me, I tell you.
0: Absolutely, this would never happen to the other fella. Um, <laughs> so, what would your bond have been like,
1: Barry? Yeah, that's interesting. Well, probably a mixture of Roger and Sean. <laughs> yeah, you know, I'd like I'd like to feel that I was as ballsy as Sean, which I'm probably not, you know. Mm. Um, and and I think I'd yeah I'd, I'd be happy with the one-liners I, th- yeah. I think the trouble with I think Timothy Dalton's a very fine actor but he was never really suited for Bond because he wasn't good on the comedy you know and that yeah. was the weakness in his performance the rest of it was terrific
0: I'm a big Dalton fan but I, 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 yeah. he did strip away the comedy from the character very, yeah. very much so but that that would have been interesting in, in an alternate universe perhaps somewhere Barry Norman is Absolutely. James Bond
1: and, and I, I got on very well with Diana Riggs so I mean the rumour has it that, that she and, and, and Lazenby didn't get on yeah to such an extent that the night before a love scene, she made sure she ate something with loads of garlic in it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, and I like to think mm. that if I'd been Bond, she wouldn't have done that. <laughs> you, you could have retaliated with
4: pickled onions. Well,
1: no, no, Well, not at not that <laughs> stage I couldn't have done. But, I mean, no, I, uh, before that, bef- you know, before she was cast in Bond, I did an interview with her at the uh, Royal Shakespeare Theatre in Stratford-on-Avon just before, I forget which play she, I think she was in Macbeth anyway I was interviewing her about that and um, the theatre wasn't open at the time and halfway through the interview I desperately needed a pee mm. and I said look Dan I've, I've got to go to the loo, uh, where are they? and she said I'll show them, so she took me down various corridors and there were two, three, four men's loos and locked and I said this is getting desperate, she said hang on, and she took me She said, I know one that's open, she took me to a lady's I said, well, I I can't go in there. Get in, she said. I'll stand guard outside. Well, Hmm. you've got Diana Riggs standing guard for you outside the lavatory. I don't think she'd have eaten garlic if you (laughs) were doing a love scene with me.
2: I'd like to think you would have done all your own stunt work as well. Oh, of course. Obviously. Absolutely, yes. See in the Morning isn't the only book that you've written, Barry. And this... This book, 100 Best Films of the Century, this yeah. is obviously the last century, has been a family-trusted sort of favourite for us, me, oh, me and nice. Nick, down the years, and I've kind of gone through it film by film. Yeah. Now, I thought maybe as a treat for our readers, we could just pick one at random and you could recommend or explain why they should track it down and see it. All Does right. that sound all right? Go on, then. Unless it's massively famous. Isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I was going <laughs> to say, first one it was The Maltese Falcon, The Bank Dick.
1: Hey, when did I do this in the mid-90s? In um, case
2: that question dropped,
1: did you really? Mm-hmm. Okay. I was
2: recommended it by Pat Oswalt. Really? The comedian. Okay.
1: Yeah. Um, it's a good film. Oh, yeah. Well, W.C. Fields was great. I mean, that's the reason to see it. I mean, he was terrific. I mean, he was the most, the least sentimental comedian of all time. You know, a lovely acerbic wit. Um, you know, and, and, and he's. He yeah, there was just never. He was a one-off. There's never been anybody quite like W. C. Fields since, and there, you know there are lovely stories about him when he was he was making a film with some young, tiny kid boy. I forget the name of the of the kid now, but uh, this kid was acting him off the screen. So one day, lunchtime, uh, Fields went along and laced the kid's orange juice with vodka, <laughs> and, and the kid <laughs> turned up on the set. You're drunk, and he said there kid's no trooper can't hold his liquor <laughs>
2: <laughs> no wonder he's one of a kind yeah. <laughs> oh,
1: you know there was another story that a friend went up to field fields was a big big drinker you know and a friend went to fields and talked about another guy a mutual friend and said i'm very worried about his drinking and Fields said how much does he drink and he said a bottle of scotch a day field said i spill more than that (laughs) (laughs) so yeah so that's the kind you know you don't get quite lines quite like that in that film but i mean it it is it is a classic movie and and should be seen more often it's
4: got a great car chase in it yes it has yeah
1: i I think comedy nowadays relies on shock more than wit for it's it, it gets a shocked laugh rather than an appreciative laugh and I think a lot of comedians are like—not all of them by any means—but a lot of them are like that. And there aren't, there aren't, well, there's nobody around like W.C. Fields.
0: Do you keep up with um, modern comedy? You know, you, for example, you're a fan of Alan Partridge. There was a great Partridge movie last year.
1: Yes, I liked yeah. that very much. I loved the bit when he shot JFK <laughs> <laughs> on the. Yeah, that was brilliant. And but the other thing was, I mean, how good he was in. Um, Philomena. Yeah. Philomena. Yeah, I mean that was a revelation. I didn't, need, I had no idea that Steve Coogan could act that well. Absolutely, I mean, an excellent performance, and lovely film actually. And,
0: mm. and co-wrote it as well for a very nice script. But um, but now yeah. you don't have to do this for for a living. You don't have to go to every screening under the under the sun.
1: That's a relief. In a it way, is a relief. Imagine.
0: <laughs> but uh, how, do you keep how, how, how do you keep up with films? Do you go to the cinema I, three times a week? Yeah. Do you,
1: I, do do? Uh, yes. No, I don't go two or three times a week. I've got time to do that anymore. Um, I go as often as I can. I, I do. I, I mean, just to keep my hand in really I, I do a weekly review for The Lady magazine because i know the editor Matt Warren and get on well with him um, and that keeps means i have I go at least once once a fortnight and i would like to go more often than that because uh, my my grandson Bertie, who lives just down the road from me he's keen moving up as well. And, so he and I go to the movies and then hmm. we'll have a pizza or something afterwards and he'll argue with my point of view. I, I, I can't understand this, you know, I mean, I'm infallible. He ought to know that. But <laughs> he, he has his own opinions.
4: We were talking just before this about Gravity um, yeah. and you were saying that w- that might have been one of the first films that you really enjoyed the 3D experience.
1: Is that right? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I saw the very first 3D film, House, House of Wax, you know, uh, and that, was, that made quite an impact. Um, But uh, I haven't got a great deal of time for 3D now, because by and large, the first time something comes out of the screen at you, you duck, and then you got used to it. But it wasn't like that with Gravity. I mean, I I went with my daughter, and we were both darting around Mm. from side to side the whole time. (laughs) I mean, that was the one time when 3D really came into its own. And it's going to be very hard to beat that, I think.
2: Mm. Going back to the 100 best films of the century, I've always wondered when I've read this, which of the films from this century might have made it onto that list for you?
1: Ah, I haven't thought about that, because there have been quite a few good ones. Yeah. You know, because you know, p- people, people, particularly of my age, come up to me and say, oh, they don't make films like they used to. And I think that's rubbish. You know, I think the best films today are as good and technically far better as, as any film ever made. And the bad ones are just as bad, if in many cases, even worse. Um, now, I hadn't I haven't really thought about that. Uh, I suppose gravity would have to go into it because of the effects. But on the other hand, you know, I remember when The Matrix came out and everybody said, oh, state-of-the-art effects, this is going to be a classic forever. And it's not anymore, is it? Because it's all been surpassed. Mm. I mean, the effects have got better and better and The Matrix now looks dated. So, it could be that in 10, 20 years' time, Gravity will look dated. Seems hard to believe now, but it might.
4: What did you make of Avatar? Are you, are you a big James Cameron fan?
1: Not really, because you know, I, I think Titanic was the most overrated film of all time. You know, I mean, it, come on, it, it re- only got interesting when the ship started to sink. <laughs> oh, God, I've given the end away again. I always do.
2: That's I mean, two films you've spoiled it, Barry.
1: <laughs> I know. But, yeah, I mean, and, and it's interesting that he got, he got all those Oscars and the one thing that was, wasn't was even nominated was the screenplay, you know, mm. because it didn't deserve to be nominated. It wasn't a good screenplay, which Cameron wrote. And and, and the way he accepted all the, you know, the plaudits at the Oscars and the arrogance of the man I, turned me off him.
2: Yeah. Just thinking about um, the, the way that films movies age and, and gravity and The Matrix and the way that, you know, the effects get surpassed year yeah. on year... Um, If you look at the work that Weta does with, like, The Hobbit compared to when they started out with, you know, Lord of the Rings. Sure. It's it's kind of... Or Jurassic Park before that. Films like the Pal and Pressburg, like Black Narcissus, which was all done with... Map mm. paintings in denim, wasn't it? And yeah. that's still very much a classic, and people can come back to it all the time. Absolutely. But maybe, do you think there's something about the visual effects universe that that kind of gives it a shelf life? Now, I guess what I'm asking is, what makes a classic? You know, what makes something that's gonna that's gonna age well for you? Can you can God, you tell? God
1: knows, honestly. I mean, yeah, you know, I've thought about this a lot. I mean, you know, I mean, I think Casablanca, for instance, is is a classic, and the way they went about it was 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 all wrong. You know, they. they they, they originally, they were going to put Ronald Reagan in it, which would have been a huge mistake. Um, and then they 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 got um, the script started coming in from the um, yeah what was the name the, the twins Julius and Philip Epstein, I think something mm, like that. Yeah. Anyway, they started writing the script, and they and and they then Warner Brothers realized this was really good stuff, so they they changed the cast and what the But they started filming before the script was completed, and in fact, they, the, the twins were taken off. And somebody else was brought in to write the script after that. And he was writing it on the set and handing the pages to Michael Curtiz and the stars <laughs> as they went along. Well, you know, basically nobody's right mind should make a <laughs> film like that. And yet it's turned out to be a, a wonderful classic that mm. speaks to generation after generation. And there's, there's, there's something that just happens is a kind of chemistry that sometimes affects a film and just mix, blends it all impeccably together, and I think that's what happens with Casablanca, is what happens with all the great movies, that nobody quite knows what it is, you know, because if anybody knew what it was, every film would be hmm. a classic, and they ate
0: Who inspired you? I know you sort of fell into it but when you when you were doing it, did anyone did you look up to any peers? Roger Eber, Pauline Cale, anyone like that? Or
1: No, Roger didn't start till after me actually. After you, yeah. And yeah. um, No, I I, wasn't. uh, I mean, it was pure accident that got me into this, and and I wasn't a keen follower of any particular critic. I mean, I didn't know very much about Pauline Cale, who's probably the most famous critic of of that time. I didn't know very much about her. Mm. Um, And maybe that helped because, you know, um, when I was offered the job or to try out for the job, um, Ian Johnston, the producer, um, said he'd seen me on a late-night lineup, and one of the reasons he'd approached me was he didn't think my appearance would frighten people too much. <laughs> uh, and the other thing was I was writing a satirical column in The Guardian every yeah. week at that time and he liked that stuff. And said, look, you, could you take the same kind of approach to reviewing films as you do to writing about politics and current affairs? Well, yeah, that was the way I write. And so I, I wasn't influenced by anybody. I just wrote what I believed.
4: Mm. The the first review I wrote was the wash, a film with Doctor Dre running a car wash. I'm just wondering if you remember the first review that you wrote. Is that etched in your mind?
1: No, I can't because that would be gosh, that would have been way back when I was working in Johannesburg. I stood in for the film critic a couple of times there. God knows what what film that would be.
2: Uh, Before Doctor Dre completed medical school. (laughs) Oh, indeed,
1: (laughs) Um, well before that. Yeah, this you know this is ages and ages ago I
4: found it interesting you mentioned Tarantino as one of your favourites
1: oh yeah I get on very well with Quentin yeah I really do because uh, I, th- I thought Reservoir Dogs was a terrific movie and I don't know if you remember but there's an awful lot of um, hoo-ha about it and the violence and all oh, that dreadful scene when you see the ear cut off which you don't actually see you mm-hmm. know it's the, mm-hmm. the, the dreadfulness is in your mind it's not what Quentin's showing on screen and anyway he the first time I met him was when he came to Cannes with Pulp Fiction and uh, I was doing an interview with him on a beach there. And I, by the time I got there, Quentin was already there. And, and Bruce said, well, oh, let me introduce you to, and, and Quentin said, hey, I know who you are. You were the first man to, to urge people to go and see Reservoir Dogs. Well, I probably wasn't the first man, but I wasn't going to disabuse him. <laughs> you know? And uh, so we, we got along extremely well from from that point on. And what, what I like about Quentin's films is is his dialogue, the way he writes. You know, which is why the, the two films I didn't like so much were the Kill Bill films, because they were very good of their kind, but they weren't really Tarantino movies. There wasn't that marvellous, sharp, witty, funny dialogue that mm. the other films have.
0: Um, I just wanted to go back to um, how you started off in the, in this business, because, as you said, your, your father was an editor-turned-director. Yeah. Uh, and pretty much every single member of your family, in some way, ended up in the film business. Um, yeah you didn't you you rebelled against you didn't want to go in the film no i really?
1: did i did when i when i left school i was 17 i'd taken my a levels and and my f- father and my school wanted me to go to cambridge but i i decided no i wanted to leave school and so i my dad and i sat in the garden one afternoon and he said what are you going to do mm. and i said well you know i'd like to do what you did go into the cutting rooms and work my way up and um, and he said he said well look I could get you a job at Ealing and I could probably get you a union ticket which was absolutely vital in those days he said but there's no guarantee you could keep a job very long because thousands of people the industry was going through one of its slumps and there are thousands <coughs> of people out of work and he said I don't think it's a good time to be going into the film industry so that's when I decided that I'd go into journalism instead because I'd, I'd always been writing things you know from a very young age and uh yeah, so I went mm. into
0: journalism. But um, you have written novels, you have written fiction. I've written ten uh, novels, yeah. So is there a Barry Norman screenplay lurking in a, in a drawer somewhere? Did you ever try and get a film off the ground?
1: No, I've had options taken on a couple of books, but, you know, this happens all the time. And I, I think most authors, you know, this has happened to and somebody takes an option, you think, oh, gosh, I'm going to be rich and famous. But uh, it, it never actually happened. In fact, the very first book I wrote was a thriller called The Matter of Mandrake with a hero who was halfway between Len Dayton's nameless hero and and James Bond. And my dad at that time was directing episodes of The Saint with Roger Moore. And God bless him. He took this big bulky manuscript and he gave it to Roger and said, look, I think there's a movie here and a part for you. And Roger, God bless him, took it to Monte Carlo on holiday with him Mm. and read this bloody thing. He (laughs) came back and said, yeah, let's go. So dad was going to direct. Roger was going to star. I was going to write the first draft screenplay and they'd obviously put it out to a professional afterwards. And all was set until Lou Gray, sod him, came back from New York with a contract for Roger to do about another 57 episodes of The Saint. (laughs) (laughs) And so by the time he was free of that, he chose, instead of doing My Hero, he chose to play James Bond, which I think was a seriously (laughs) bad career move.
2: And you could have
0: done Bond. Whilst he was, one. yeah. <laughs> Another question I get because I've been lucky enough to be um, a small part of your legacy on the film program. Yeah. I was part of the team that took over from Jonathan Ross. And a question I get asked all the time is, why does the show take a summer break when that's when all the blockbusters and the, and the big summer movies? Come about? Do you know, I, mean, I
1: never, I never did understand that. Yeah. You know, mind you, in those days, lo- most of the regular stuff took a summer break, and and they did repeats. And I, th- I think the reason is that there isn't such a big audience in the summer because people are going away on holiday mm-hmm. at all times. And the other thing I never understood was why the programme was on so late. Mm. <laughs> and and I did ask the BBC why, and they said oh, because you get a, at that time of the night you get much the biggest share of the total audience and which if it was a commercial station i would understand but the bbc's not selling anything except itself i mean why does it care what share i got when it knew that if it put me on an hour earlier it could have doubled the audience
0: quick question from at Tokyo Sexwell.
1: you don't think that's his name either <laughs> it might well be you never know
0: uh i had a massive argument with my girlfriend because she didn't believe that barry norman sells pickled onions
1: Well, I don't actually go around selling them myself. (laughs) A brand of pickled onions made from a recipe I got from my mother and she got from her mother is on sale in supermarkets and is, I'm happy to say, extremely popular. I can say... With all due modesty, that they are quite the best pickled onions it is possible to buy. They're delicious.
0: Mm.
2: We were rather hoping you were going to bring some, Barry. Oh, you <laughs> <right. She
1: laughs> asked me.
3: I,
0: I didn't know that was. A... This is also from the same guy at Jedi News 2010, who asks,
1: "Do you still have your sailor's costume from and Wise?" I never had that costume. It was, uh, you know, it was just provided for me for the occasion. It wasn't given to me, and uh, I probably couldn't get into it now anyway. But uh, <laughs> uh, but that was I have. That was an amazing experience working with those two because they, they, their producer phoned me up and said, The Boys, you know, always called The Boys, want you on their Christmas show. And uh, I said, well, what am I supposed to do? And they, he said, well, singing and dancing. I said, look, I, I can't do either of those things. You know, if I <laughs> sing in the bathroom, the family hammers on the door begging me to stop. He said, never mind, we'll, we'll get round it. Do you want to do it? Said, well, of course I wanted to do it, because um, as Edward Woodward said when he was invited on, if the best want you on this show, hmm. you don't quibble. Yeah. And, you know, I said, how much? And he said, oh, 100 quid. And I said, oh, well, I'll send it now. And he said, no, no, we're paying you. You know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah, and I have never been so famous as I was um, after that show went out, you know, because more than half the country watched on Christmas Day. I mean, yeah. unbelievable now, isn't it? That yeah. so many people could watch one show on one day, and and the great thing was the the acrobatics that we did. And people used to come up to me in the street and say, "Gosh, you know, how did you do those back flips and all the rest mm-hmm. of it?" And I would eventually, you know, originally I'd say, "Well, we didn't. We just got to the point where it looked as if we were going to do these things," and then they cut to a real acrobat doing. them. And I got bored with that, and, and 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 so people came up and said, "How do you do it?" And I said, "Well, you need a springboard, if you get, because what you need is height. So you've got a springboard, you can get the height, and then you can do anything." Oh, right, they'd say, and go off, and I think, "Oh my God, you know, this silly sod's going to go off and kill himself now. It's going to be my fault. He's going to break his neck." But it, yeah, I was, it was astonishing how how many people stopped me in the street after that.
0: The idea that a, a film critic as yourself can be famous did you take a while to adjust to that to a long time to the
1: notion that long time yeah Yeah. because i mean at the time when i started in the 70s nearly everybody i knew who was on there uh had no interest in being famous at all it didn't occur to us that we'd become famous it was just that you know it was it was a lovely gig and nice to be able to sit there in front of an audience and show off your knowledge and because most of the people who are on were there because they did know something about the subject they were talking about. They didn't depend on researchers finding out the information for them. And I, I think the first time I realised that, that this fame had rubbed off on me was I think I was with Roger Moore coming out of the Savoy Hotel and there was a group of people outside waiting for Roger's autograph and they clustered around him and I stood back. And then they came a cluster around me. And, <laughs> me? <laughs> um, yeah. It's very gratifying, I must say, but it, it it still surprises me.
0: It must have reached a peak though when uh, Spitting Image and Roy Bremner started impersonating you and coining that famous phrase.
1: Well, it wasn't Spitting. A lot of people think that "and why not" came from Spitting Image, but it didn't. It came from a separate show that Rory did on Channel Four, and yeah, you know, I, I remember that vividly because um, I I hadn't watched the show. I, I no doubt I'd been watching a movie at the time. Anyway, the the day after, I was walking through an area of Soho on my way to another film screening and there were three guys leaning on a car and as I went by one of them said and why not and they all fell about <laughs> I, I said God I wonder what they're on because you know I'd like some you know it'd been a half day. <laughs> and we got I got to the cinema and, and you know one of those lovely evening shows where they give you sandwiches and a glass of wine you've all been there mm. and so I was talking to a friend drinking my wine and there was a little man across the room a little fat man and he was bobbing up and down, and he had gone quite red, you know, and he suddenly came in front of me, and still bobbing up and down, and very red, and said, and why not? I said, what? <laughs> he said, and why not? I said, look, I heard what you said, but why are you saying it? <laughs> he said, it's what you always say, and I said, it isn't, you know, I never say that, and I I, I never have, And at that time, I had a book out at that time, and I was being interviewed quite a lot on radio and television programmes about it. And every interviewer said, now this catchphrase of yours, when did you first... I said, it's not my (laughs) catchphrase, I've never said it. And I went around moaning for a long time, until finally I got a note from Rory saying, write your own bloody catchphrase in future. (laughs) So I thought, yeah, it's better to have a catchphrase even if you don't use it than not.
0: But there is that moment, I didn't dream this, where you and Rory appeared on the show together. At the same time, saying the same, oh, the that's same script. Right. Yes. Yeah, yeah. That was uh, that was that was great fun. Yeah, fantastic.
1: I, I, yeah, I, as I said, I, I did something else with with Rory and Des Lynham once, and Rory was doing all kinds of voices, and he did it to Des and he did me and. Afterwards, I I went up to him and I said, you know, I, I think it's fantastic. You're brilliant at everything except me and you're absolute crap at me. <laughs> <laughs> he said, oh, no, not you too. Des has just said the same thing. <laughs> <Yeah>.
4: <laughs> what, are the, what are the movies coming up in 2014 that you, you've got? I, I honestly settled?
1: don't know. I don't, I'm not that up with, with what's coming up anymore. I mean, a few years back, if you'd asked me, I could have reeled off a dozen mm. titles, but now I don't. I just wait and see what's coming out and then pick and choose the ones that I want to go and see.
2: De Niro, no doubt, has another movie coming out at some point. In case there is some kind of serendipitous reunion, I, <laughs> I've been workshopping a new boxing nickname for you. Yeah, the Datchworth Destroyer. Oh, that's not bad. Do you like that? Yeah, I like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's better than the Craven Coward.
1: Yes, it is. <laughs> <right>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes, it, yes, it's got a better ring to it, I think. Yeah,
2: absolutely.
1: Yeah. Uh, uh, no, different. If De Niro's got a film coming out, I'll happily see it. I would like watching De Niro, and I just don't particularly want to meet him again.
0: He never. He might be more mellow now.
1: Oh, and um, he probably is. Maybe I am, too. I don't know. It'd be hmm. nice. You know, you could, you could be friends. You could be friends. <laughs> <laughs> Bosom buddies. Yeah. Absolutely.
0: Uh, and on that note, Barry Norman, it has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for coming It's been
1: a pleasure for me, too. I enjoyed this enormously. Thank, Thank, you, very
0: you.
2: Much. Thank you. Thank you.